Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 and 13 and keep those open this morning. And husbands, I don't know in this room if you feel the same way, but after seeing Jim's video about washing feet, I want you to know I washed my wife's car one time. I I just want credit. So I measure somehow in the comparison. That's pretty amazing. They're a great couple. Hey, we're glad you're here this morning. And we're continuing in this series called The Revealed Jesus, looking at the revelation found at the end of your New Testament. And we're talking a lot about what does this tell us about God? Because in the very beginning, the first five words of the text are the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we keep that in perspective, the themes of this book uh, are beneficial to our growth. They're beneficial to our faith and our understanding. And we're going to get in a a very intense chapter or two chapters uh, this morning. What is God saying to a group of people who are told to hold on? That things are going to get tough that being a follower of Jesus is not going to be acceptable, that it may cost us our lives, it may cost us our fortune, it may cost us our occupations. What is God saying in the Revelation to people like you and me who are being warned to buckle up and hold on because faith will cost us something? How is he addressing this? It is a cosmic supernatural battle. And that statement in and of itself is going to cause some people to be dismissive toward me. And it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's that we're convinced in our rational age that uh, supernatural is a thing of the past. Even that reading, something like Lord of the Rings, right? You got dragons and you got seas on fire and you got hailstones falling from the sky. And we read this and we go, oh, it's just, you know, it is imagery. But please understand, the imagery is saying something. And the, the number one thing I want you to get this morning is there is a battle for the souls of humans taking place around us every moment. It's a battle for your soul. It's a battle for the soul of the people you care for. This is not pretend. This is not uh, hyperbole. This is actually what this text is showing us, that this is life and death stuff. The struggle with sin in our lives, the struggles in our marriages, our fears, our frustrations, our worries, our temptations, it's all a part of a battle that has been taking place in the narrative of scripture from Genesis all the way to the completion. We live in the middle of a battle And so it's easy for us to say, well, come on, Mark, take this like super serious. No, Jesus did, so I will. And regardless of what I want to be true, what I wish were true, I have to look at the authority of God's word and find out what it says is true. And it says that we fight against things in the heavenlies that we cannot see that are real and they're dark and it's spiritual. So with that happy opening, let's look at our text today, right? For those of you who haven't been joining us, I want to give you a simple, uh, Dr. Randy Harris teaches at Abilene Christian University, and one time he was discussing uh, Revelation, and he gave Revelation in three sentences, and here it is. Are you ready? God's team wins. Pick a team. Don't be stupid. All right? So if you haven't been tracking so far, what I've been saying for four weeks now, entering into week five, is this simple truth. God, the, the Revelation shows us God wins. You and I get to pick which team we're on. Don't be a fool. And if you hold to that thought, we're going to understand chapters 12 and 13 pretty deeply uh, here this morning. I want to tell you about the story of the battle. The story of the battle is a theme that is throughout all of Scripture. There's something called the meta-narrative. 
The meta-narrative is the big, big narrative of all of scripture. If you just take the story and you take the prophecies and you take all that's being said leading into the revelation, you're gonna find out that there's a consistent story that God set out to rescue his world from what sin has done to it. And that God will judge sin as we talked last week and he will redeem sinners. Those that let him save them, he will. He's able, he wants to, it's his desire. And those who choose to stay loyal and faithful to sin, they will suffer what sin suffers, devastation, judgment, and punishment. And this battle's going on. And uh, John was given a vision of three characters that epitomize this story. There's three characters. There's, there's a mother, there's a child, and there's a dragon. And when you see this in chapter 12, it's painting a picture for us of the meta narrative of scripture. So let's walk through what each of them represent. Now the woman has options available to us. If you read in the scholarship, some suggest it's Eve, some suggest it's the nation of Israel. Most people agree it's at least Mary. And some people say it's the church. Telescopically, starting from the minute person all the way backing up, I could make a case for all four. And so it, it's clearly Mary, but it could include Israel, the church, Eve, going all the way back to the whole story of this battle that's been taking place. And what does it tell us? She's pregnant. And she's pregnant and the serpent, the snake, wants to kill the child. But we go all the way back to Genesis chapter three. And the promise made to a mother there that her child would crush the head of the serpent. And the, the cosmic battle begins there. That God says, I am going to bring a child into this world and that child will defeat what the serpent has done. And then we get to the child. Well, this is easy. This is a Sunday school answer. You know, you know the Sunday school answers, right? God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, baptism, and church. Those five things answer every question in church, right? Just throw them out there. You're gonna get 20% chance you're right. Well, this one's clearly Jesus. In chapter two, she's pregnant. And in verse five, she gives one that's gonna rule all the nations with the rod of iron. Old Testament illustration found in the Revelation again. Remember the echoes of the Old Testament are heard throughout the Revelation. And then it also says that he is the one caught up to God and his throne. And we've identified in the last two weeks, that's Jesus. So we know who the woman is. We get the concept of the woman. We know who the child is. And what's the, the dragon? Well, this is the easiest of the three, even easier than Jesus because he's described here. Verse three, it's a great red dragon with seven heads, 10 horns, and on his head, he has seven crowns. Remember, numbers matter. Horns, power. Crowns, authority. 10 heads, 10 rulers. So when you look at this and you weigh these numbers, you realize in verse nine, it says that that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So this cosmic battle, this real battle in the heavenlies and displayed here on earth, materialized here on earth, is a battle between the serpent wanting to stop the mother from having the child. And what I'd like to be able to do is I'd like to tell you of this, the story of the promised conqueror. And I'd like to do it in three parts. And I'm gonna delineate these three parts so you understand what I'm talking about. I, I did this Thursday night and, and some people I trust dearly were very kind, but they're like, yeah, I got lost. So I wanna make sure that you understand why I'm taking you on this journey to see what I want you to see in the Old Testament passages. Well, the first part is the serpent goes after the family of the child. It tries to stop the child from coming. And the way that the serpent does this, he attacks the lineage. 
Now, the lineage doesn't mean anything to Americans. I mean, we we might be proud if we have a a president or a CEO of a major corporation or a a, a movie star or a great athlete in our family line. We might talk about this, but Matthew and Luke in their gospels, they were adamant to show you that the lineage of Jesus was the promise of God. All the way back to King David or all the way back to Adam himself, the lineage shows you that God did what he said he would do. He told Eve, I'm going to bring a child, and this is the story. But if you read the Old Testament through the eyes of the battle, here's what I want you to see. It can be frightening sometimes to realize in the story of the Old Testament that we were sometimes one man or one woman away from the chain being broken, that the lineage of Jesus being stopped because God said it would come from Eve and that it would go through this lineage, and we're told in the Old Testament it would come through King David, and there are moments in time, I can take you to Noah, one man who stood in the gap. I can take you to Abraham, one man who stood in the gap. I can take you to Queen Esther, one woman who stood in the gap. I can take you to a a widow woman named Ruth, who because of her faithfulness to God, married this man who had a child, and she became, well, through her family came King David. And and you and I wonder, well, uh, that's kind of cool and kind of creepy, and I hadn't thought of it that way. I want you to think of it this way. God has, all the way back to the beginning to the garden, he is going to use his people who walk by faith to bring his kingdom about. And the serpent, Satan, knew to stop the child from even arriving. So over and over and over, the world tempts God's people to compromise and to not be found faithful. And yet beautifully throughout the scripture, from King David to Esther and so on and so forth, we have this moment where the promise of God is being fulfilled. Why? Because God made it happen? Because somebody stood in the gap. Somebody stood on faith instead of just logic. Someone stood on faith rather than just feelings. And we have this beautiful moment in the passage of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, where he's reminding us what God is going to do. But think of all the time that preceded this. In chapter 7, verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that echoes back to Genesis 3, where God said to to Eve, your child will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent knows this too. He was there. So he sets out to stop the child from arriving. Chapter 9, it tells you the power of this child, how God's plan would work. The government shall be on his shoulders. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It has been announced this child will be the king, not a king, the final king, the real king, the fulfilling king. I want you to see the Old Testament from the perspective of the battle. Each and every story is showing us that people standing in the gap matter. Let's go to part two. Part one is the Old Testament, how the serpent goes after Eve and her family to stop this from happening. Then part two is the battle against Jesus himself. We know that Jesus was born. King Herod decides that every child or every boy in that region under the age of two will be executed so that the king is killed as a child. An angel appears to Joseph and says, take the baby away to Egypt, and he does, and the baby is rescued, and his baby grows up to be the savior of the world. But Satan doesn't stop to just stop the birth. Satan goes after Jesus the entire way. He turns people away from him. He brings the Roman government down on him to threaten him. He even has him killed. And at that moment, the serpent thinks he's won. He's accomplished what he wanted to do from the very beginning. He's ended the lineage by killing the child. And yet, three days later, uh uh-oh, 
he comes to life. And not only does he come to life, but upon his resurrection, he ascends back to the Father. And this is even a greater blow, if you will. The resurrection, think about it, the birth of Jesus announced the end of the serpent was happening. The resurrection of Jesus took away his poison. And the ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father took away any fake authority he thought he had. In the beautiful story of Jesus, his arrival played right into the hands of the serpent, or so the serpent thought, and yet by having Jesus killed and turning the world against him, he actually brought about God's purpose. Look with me in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice. This is after the child has been taken to the throne. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Notice, when Jesus sits on the throne, Satan vacates his. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That verse 11 is so significant. Satan lost everything he thought he had by actually running his own plan. Satan has no wisdom. Satan's side loses. You and I get to choose our side. Be wise. Snatched up by God to the throne. The accuser is hurled down. Verse 11, one more time. And by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love their lives even unto death. This is when the story changes to part three. The serpent pursuing Eve's family, the serpent pursuing the child itself, and now the serpent goes after the followers of the child. He goes after his brothers and sisters, those adopted into the family, those called by God into fellowship. It's the battles against the church and those who believe. This is why I can't be more passionate about this subject matter for those who are hearing my voice who are dismissing that there's a supernatural battle going on in this world, good versus evil. Why would you study Revelation with us if you don't believe that God is telling us truth? God's not giving us a fable to hold on to. He's giving us a reason to hold on to faith. He's revealing Jesus as the answer to what we need. And there will be a call to loyalty in this text. The decisive battle has been won and the devil knows it. The devil sets out to accuse the followers of Jesus. Now, what, what makes my heart sad, maybe you can experience this feeling too, what makes my heart sad is that Satan does not have to lie to God about what I've done. All he's got to do is tell the truth. I don't stand before God innocent. I don't stand before God good. I don't stand before God holy or righteous. I stand before God as a, a broken man by sin who brought it upon himself and deserves all the wrath and punishment from it. And yet I stand before God and Jesus stands and the blood that was over the mantle place or over the, the, the piece of wood over the doorway that allowed people in those homes to survive, the wrath of God, that blood is on me. And when God comes with his wrath on sin, I will be a sinner saved by grace. My sin will be dealt with. I will be delivered. And so can you. And Satan comes and he accuses us. And it's a battle for our faithfulness. It's a battle for our marriages and our children. It's a battle to say that our lives are not to be simply our own satisfaction. Our lives can only find satisfaction in surrender and sacrifice to the kingdom. Satan's coming after his heart. In fact, in verse 13, it, he, John uses the word for persecution and opposition when he says he pursues them. He's relentless. And why is he relentless? Because he knows he's defeated. 
So the only way he can get any satisfaction is to take out the followers of the king because he himself is defeated. In some perverse evil force, if he can harm someone else, he finds satisfaction in this. The world promises you peace and joy, and they, they promise you this satisfying presence. Like if, if you're satisfied personally and you have all the money and all the relationships and you have all these things, you're going to be fulfilled. And yet we all know, don't we, when we stop and assess that when we have given ourselves over to the pleasures and passions of the world, we end up feeling shameful and empty when we're done. Not satisfied. It just makes us want more of the poison that's killing us. And so Satan's coming after us. He's a defeated foe. He strives to ruin others as he's been ruined. So I open by saying, what has God told people like you and I that gives us the strength to hold on, to endure, to face persecution, trials, and even death? How reasonable can God be to say your life could be really, really jacked up, and yet I want you to remain faithful to me and I'll deliver you? He does it through the promise of Jesus, not through our own willpower, not through our own strength, but through the promise of what Jesus has done. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, it was a position that we don't understand because we don't have kings and queens. But when you sat down at the right hand of God, you were in the position of authority. And when you sat down, your work was done. It's such a beautiful picture. And what continues to be at stake is not the victory. What continues to be at stake are those of us that still fight on. And fight on, we have to. Because until Jesus returns and a new heaven and earth are formed, we will live in the empire of evil, fighting against it with the light of Christ. And we have to continue, we have to hold on. And the strategy of the adversary is to, present, is to prevent rather people like you and me from experiencing peace and hope. Even believers can be discouraged and quit. That's why we're encouraged over and over. Have no fear. Do not be discouraged and give up. Do not quit. This is eternal. This matters. It's hard, yes, but it's real, yes. So if you stop listening, jump back in here for the next 30 seconds. We, you and I are to stay in the fight, not for victory, but from victory. We stay in the fight not because we have to. We stay in the fight because we get to. We stay in the fight because those around us matter. We stay in the fight because the glory of Jesus needs to be proclaimed. The antidote to the evil in the world is found in Christ himself. We have a message. Remember, it was by the blood of the lamb and the testimony of his people. We must testify. It's not just about our salvation. It's not just about whether we're going to heaven in this new kingdom. That has the least to do with it. It's actually about whether our love transcends ourselves to others so that they might know that Jesus is the antidote to everything that's ruining their lives and making them unhappy, making them incomplete, making them feel broken. We stay in the fight not for victory. We stay in it from victory. So let's talk about the deception of the conquered. This shows us the serpent. Chapter 13 is, a, is imagery that is telling the same story as chapter 12, except it shows us how the conquered serpent is acting and what the conquered serpent is doing. So in chapter 13, we see a dragon. And a dragon comes out of the sea. And I can't go into a great explanation. We'll talk about it over the next couple of weeks, but I just want to introduce it. The sea in Hebrew literature would symbolize chaos and darkness and depth of evil. So you'll notice that in front of the throne of God, the, the sea is still like glass. What does that tell you? God's sovereign. Even when we can't see what's going on, God has it completely under control. And so out of the sea comes a dragon. That's common, right? 
And this dragon comes up with great force. And this dragon performs great miracles. And this dragon shows its power and the threat to those who don't bow to its power. And then two beasts come out of the water, one at a time. He calls one beast out of the water, and the beast comes out of the water, and it performs miracles, and it has authority, and it gets people's attention, and then it dies and comes back to life. Have you heard that before? And then the third beast comes out of the water, and it begins to tout and promote the second beast who was dead and is now to life. And you look at that, and you go, well, wait a second. It's a parody. The dragon and the two beasts are actually, as my friend Shane Wood told me, the unholy trinity. It's a parody of the power of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. It replicates it, but it kind of does. Their power is for evil. They promise satisfaction, but they also promise it this way. If you don't do what I want, you're disposable. Our Trinity works for the glory of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but it also works so that we might become children of God that our relationship with God would be safe and fulfilling. And the unholy trinity only uses you and throws you away. And they have great power. And they're one of 10 kings. And John's audience would have known this was Rome. This was the power of Rome. You even read in the passages that they couldn't sell or buy. They couldn't go to certain places. You know what Rome was, right? If you didn't bow to Rome, you could lose everything. You were disposable. You could be eliminated and there was no jurisdiction that would protect you. Rome got what Rome wanted and the serpent and the beast get what they want at the expense of God's people. And John was seeing this vision of what the world is calling us to do. And, and we stop and go, well, Rome is gone, right? Yeah, Rome met the end that was promised in scripture. Evil will not win. Evil will not last. God will put an end in his justice to all of this. And yet you and I think, well, Rome's over, right? But think about it. In our lifetimes alone, look at the heartless, dehumanizing pagan empires that rise up each and every day, that treat people like they're to be expended for, this, for the sake of the government. And yet I've heard it so much in the last two years during this election cycle that just put a scar on our country. I've heard it so many times. Well, God puts people in charge of governments, but be careful, be careful. Nebuchadnezzar was put in charge of a government too sent to punish God's people. So not everything that God allows is naturally the way you and I might think it is. And in a moment like this, think about it. The Roman government thought they were divine authority. They weren't under the divine authority of God. And that's when it becomes dangerous. When governments stand as God rather than under God, we should be very, very careful where we put our loyalty. Completely careful where we put our loyalty. And this is what chapter 13 is showing us. The dragon and the beast come out of the water and they, they make this great pronouncement and there's, they're not leading for God, they're leading as God and they're exposed. Look at verses eight and 10 with me of chapter 13. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have been written in the lamb's book of life. The lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears... Let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. John makes a big statement here. There will be a price to pay for believers who do not worship the idols of the world. The world will strike back at us. They will dismiss us. 
They might cancel us. They might punish us. It could be conceivable in our lifetime. I don't know if it will. I hope it doesn't. It's conceivable in our lifetime that some of us will pay a great price to present the gospel, that churches may not be allowed to meet. And if we do meet, there could be punitive action for those who attend. It could cost you business opportunities. It could cost you promotions. It could cost you peace in your life. I don't want that. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm reading the revelation. We're told this happens all the time, has continued to happen. What makes us think it's not happening in our world today? And in light of this, that's why John tells us in the revelation, patient endurance, hold on to the victory that Jesus is bringing, even though we still remain in the battle. Hold on. Don't give up. And those who follow the world, something unique happens here. The beast massacres all who refuse him, and he marks all who follow him. So this is what you've been happy about for weeks now, right? What is 666, Mark? This is what you've come for. There's several questions people ask me over and over. Just be patient. Well, now you don't have to be patient. Here's the answer. I don't know. <laughs> no, actually, I have an idea. The 666 is a parody. It's the imperfect 777. Now, if you're looking for one historical figure over and over, I think you're going to miss it. If you're looking for the Antichrist, you'll find out that there is no the, the Antichrist. There are Antichrists. They're in every generation and every era. What is the mark of the beast? Well, I want to focus on the better mark. How about the mark of the lamb? Do you notice that those marked by the beast have not been marked by the lamb? They're not written in the lamb's book of life. They've not been covered in the blood. So everyone take a deep breath. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, guess what? You're not going to accidentally fall into the mark of the beast. There's hope. However, the mark of the beast is simply on those for what you worship. It says it's marked on the hand and the forehead. That scares me because I have too much forehead, right? So if it's going to be marked on me, y'all are going to see it. The hand is the work of the life. The forehead is the mind. It's your thought life. Do you know what the mark of the beast is? It's what you worship. It's what you'd give your life for. It's what you've made most priority. I don't know about you, but I'm living in a world that's telling me all the time, but don't go nuts over Christianity. Just be balanced, like be human. I mean, you can believe in Jesus, but just don't go all psycho about it. Like, really? Do you know who went to the cross for you? Do you know the overwhelming and complete goal he had to come and deny himself everyday satisfactions so he could present himself as the lamb who would be slain and die on the cross so you and I could have hope? And then we dare think in our hearts that Jesus should get a small portion of our lives, but we don't want to be crazy. Church, get crazy. He deserves everything. He gave everything. How could we offer him any less than what he offered us while we were the enemy? The mark of the lamb is to be written in the Lamb's book of life, covered in the blood, faithful unto death to him. The mark of the beast is when Jesus gets a percentage of who you are. And we want to make sure that our business is our priority. Our kids' sports programs are our priority. Our fame, our attractiveness, our physical health, our possessions, the way we posture in culture, those things are what we're loyal to. If we look at our lives, we're going to see we are marked by the world more than we're marked by the Lamb. This is a day of repentance. If I'm speaking to you and you're free of all of this, thank God you're free of all of this. You can worship him that way. For the rest of us, look at your hands and your head. What is your mind and the work of your hands going toward? Is it going toward 
the promotion and the testimony of the slain lamb? Or is it going to the fact that I'm going to be saved one day, but right now I got a real life to live? The mark of the beast is not something you accidentally fall into. The mark of the beast is something you choose. I've chosen it, have you? I've been marked too long in my life, covered in the blood of the lamb, but living for a world's kingdom. It's a day of repentance. It's our testimony. And our testimony is not just our words, it's our life, it's our actions, it's our choices. It's a day for families to have conversations today about what are we really actually living for? I've entitled today's message, He Overcomes. Jesus faced the dragon and gave his life for evil so that we could rise in life. He ascended to the Father upon the resurrection. He has overcome. Will we? Will we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of our lives? Will we give him what he gave us? Will we offer him as an act of gratitude the joy and the life that he gave us? Remember, God's team wins. You get to pick which team you're on. Don't be foolish. Choose today. For some of us, you've never made a proclamation of Jesus. You like what he teaches. You like the hope of grace. You want to go to heaven one day. We all do. But you can live in the kingdom now. You can live right now under the authority and kingship of Jesus Christ. You can be marked with the blood of the Lamb. You can know that the Spirit of God will be speaking to you to purge the things of the world out of your life, that you can live holy before him. For those of us who have made that profession of faith, we've been washed clean in the waters of baptism, it's time for us to stand up and say, I have too much kingdom interest in my life, and I need to stop it. I need to ask God for the power to be loyal to him before I'm loyal to all these things that tell me that I don't have time for the kingdom. I'm busy. Well, busy is wrong if the kingdom is denied. We repent and we change. You have these little cups in front of you when you came in the room. And I know every time I do this, I ask you not to open it and you still do. God's watching, right? (laughs) I want you to hold them for just a second because I I, want to be crystal clear this morning what we're asking you to do. I'm going to ask you not to take it. What? No, I want you to think about this with me. If Jesus isn't the most important thing in your world, don't insult him. If, if, if the kingdom and the growth of the kingdom isn't what you want to give your life to, be very, very cautious of doing that. I'm not saying if you drink it, you're going to choke and die. Although that would be quite a Sunday, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'm actually asking you as you hold this to look at it and say, this is a pledge of loyalty. He's going to invite us to his table and he's invited us by the blood of the lamb and the testimony of our lives to live for him. And this is the moment we repent. This is the moment we get to eat and drink to the one who gave everything for us and deserves everything in response. And I mean that everything. Be a fanatic for the kingdom. You'll never regret it. Play the kingdom is 30% of your life. I think you might regret that. And I also want to bring something up before we receive. I also want to ask you, what are you giving to the kingdom? I believe in Jesus Christ because my mom and dad taught me about him. And multiple Sunday school and youth sponsors and friends in the church poured into my life. A camp manager invested in me and youth ministers and, and Christians that came to that camp poured into this kid. And I went to a Bible college and I had professors who took this ridiculously obstinate freshman and beat him to death until he graduated. And I've come to a church like this where you are kind of gracious. You, you let me teach, you let me make mistakes, you let me grow with you. I'm indebted to all of you and all of these people in my life. I did not come to faith because I'm so brilliant. I came to faith because somebody cared about me. 
Who do you care about for the kingdom? Who right now do you see as someone who needs to hear your testimony that Jesus is worth everything? See, you can invest in the kingdom in a bunch of ways. You can care about your neighbor. You can love your family. You can grow closer to God in discipleship. You can give financially to help church planning throughout the world, people in our own community. You have opportunities in the way we worship to not just come and participate, but actually come and worship. As we receive, we should give. And as we give, we should receive. So this morning, we get to eat and drink to a Savior. I pray he's your Savior. But most of all, I pray he's your Lord. And that what we're about to do in these next few moments, in the silence of this room, that we would eat and drink to Jesus and let him know I'm in. You're my king. You're my everything. Teach me how to walk with you. Let's pray. Father, receive our testimony and our praise right now as we receive your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy. Holy Spirit, fill us with your direction that we might live for you. So we eat and drink as testimony today to our loyalty to the one who gave everything for us. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.